Matt, well, good morning. It's so good to be with you. I've looked forward to this for a long time and uh, developed a really sweet friendship with your pastor. Uh, Mike, when you said I've been a pastor for 25 years, I'm sitting there listening. That sounds like a long time. I feel old. I started when I was 10. Um, that's a lie. Actually, at a time when I was in Ohio, I would pick up pizzas at the same place, you know, regularly. And the guy knew, like, that's the church that meets at the high school. And then uh, I didn't do it for a couple of years. And then I went back and he says, what church is this? I said, oh, we're the one that meets at the high school. He looked at me and he says, they used to have this young pastor. Is that guy still around? I was like, no, that guy's gone forever. Uh, we'll never be back. But Your pastor uh, is such a blessing to me. And I hope you know uh, and consider him a blessing to you as well. Um, there's, there's a uniqueness about him, his, his love for scripture, um, his love for God, his love for, um, for the church, his love for your church. He talks about you all the time, and um, it's just so encouraging to be around. I love your pastor. Now, the Bible commands me to love him, you know. The Bible commands me to, um, to love my wife, to love uh, the church, to love my enemies. I have to love him. I actually like him. And uh, that's something altogether different. Um, just a unique combination. And if you've, if you've had to look for a church recently, uh, you recognize that what's happening here at Grace is not happening everywhere. Uh, I wish it were. Uh, sometimes there are people, they, uh, a pastor that loves people, but maybe uh, doesn't care too much about the scriptures. Uh, or sometimes there's people, they really committed to the word, but they just don't like people very much. And your, your pastor is just a unique blessing. And uh, positivity and encouragement. Every Saturday, he writes a group of pastors, uh, myself included, and he just says, hey, man, I'm praying for you. Preach the word, exalt Christ, love people, and, um, and he does all of that. So uh, I'm very grateful for your pastor and have actually, um, I think I've grown as a Christian just by his example. I want to be, be kind of more like he is. So uh, I admire him highly, but please don't tell him that. I try to keep it a well-kept secret. So uh, really good to be with you today. Take your Bibles, please, and turn to John 4. John 4 is a passage that uh, I'm assuming you know well if you've been around church for long. This is the story of Jesus with the woman at the well. Um, Jesus uh, with the Samaritan woman. One commentator says, you know, the, the um, parable that Jesus tells of the Good Samaritan this chapter tells us about the bad Samaritan. Uh, this is a, a really needy lady. And I know you know the passage well, but I would like you to kind of read it with fresh eyes. Don't assume that, you know, oh, I know what's going to happen here. It's actually an amazing passage, uh, probably my favorite chapter of the Bible. And for one reason um, is I just identify with the Samaritan woman so much. Uh, I've preached it and said uh, kind of a provocative, memorable statement. I read John 4 and I say, I am a Samaritan woman. Now you say that in the year 2022 and I have to make some clarifications. I do not self-identify as a Samaritan woman. Uh, I am an, an old 50-year-old man. However, spiritually I resonate with her because I really think the Bible kind of intends her to be an example of all of us. Um, when you read this passage, don't identify primarily with Jesus. You say, well, I'm a lot like that. You're not. Um, but this woman, you're a lot like her. And what do I mean by that? Uh, she, she's so confused. She's so lost. 
She's so needy. She's so thirsty. And Jesus loves her in spite of herself. Jesus sets his affection on her because he's just so awesome. He's so gracious. So read it with an eye to kind of identify with her. And then this passage is actually going to give us kind of a summary of what God is doing all over the world, what he's been doing for 2,000 years through his church. It's kind of a microcosm of what God is doing in, in saving people, but also drastically changing their lives for his glory. So uh, we're going to read John 4, verses 1 through 42. That'll take a significant amount of time. Uh, I tell young preachers, uh, never cut short the reading of scripture to give yourself more time to talk about it. The Bible reading is the only part of the sermon that you're absolutely getting right. So read a lot of scripture, right? So we'll read what God has to say. Uh, I'll draw some points along the way, and then we'll draw some observations. I hope that will be really good for, uh, for us and for the glory of God. John chapter 4, the authoritative, inspired, inerrant, profitable word of God. And when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, Although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. So he left uh, the southern region of Israel around Jerusalem, and then he went up north by the Sea of Galilee where he was from. And verse 4, he had to pass through Samaria, just geographically, it's in the middle. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus wearied as he was from his journey. Uh, there's a sermon series in that, the, the maker of all the world is weary from his journey. He's thirsty. So it's the incarnation. He's God, but he's, he's weary and thirsty. It's amazing. Uh, but he's weary from his journey. He's sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour or noon. It's the heat of the day. Verse seven, a woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans? There's, there's prejudice, there's racism even in Jesus' day. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that say, is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with. The well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty nor have to come here to draw water. So she's interested, but she still doesn't understand. She's still thinking of physical water. Now he's going to answer her request by pressing into her life story. So we begin in verse 16, Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands. The one you have now, is not your husband, what you've said is true. She tries to change the subject. So she said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain 
nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You, Samaritans, worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. The hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. The Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit. Those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman kind of shrugs and she says, I know Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And then Jesus makes this amazing self-revelation, more clear than he gave almost to anyone else in his ministry. He just overtly said in verse 26, Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. I am the Messiah. I am the Savior. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? We'll pause for just a moment to give kudos to Peter. This is one time when Peter actually didn't correct Jesus or speak his mind. So good for him on this occasion. Uh, Verse 28, the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come and see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. They don't understand. So verse 33, so the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, my food, or we might say my hunger, is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I've sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him and asked him to stay with them, he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe For we have now heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. What a great climax to this passage. This Samaritan woman is going to come to Christ. Through her influence, a village comes to Christ, and they celebrate that he is the Savior of the world. That's so different than the way the chapter started. The chapter starts with the Pharisees being envious of Jesus, full of rivalry, and and they're jealous of his influence, and he's kind of chased away from the Jews. He goes to these hated Samaritans. And a few days later, revival has fallen. And they said he's the savior of the world. Not just the savior of the Jews. Not just the savior of Americans. Not just the savior of the respectable or a certain ethnicity. He is the savior of the world. Anyone who comes to him in faith, uh, their life will be changed. What a great passage. I want to start with... Uh, this idea, there's, there's five points coming at you if you're uh, keeping notes. All of them are fairly simple, and hopefully you can see them in the text. We start with this, very simply. Jesus seeks sinners. Jesus seeks sinners. He's the one that is actually the initiator of this conversation. He's the aggressor. And as we read, 
Jesus is talking to this woman and she's kind of evasive. Um, he's pursuing her and she's dodging. She's trying to get away. But Jesus is after her. He set his affection on her. There's, there's theology in that. You know, we talk sometimes about people who are seeking after God. We have seekers. You know, we have churches that are made for seekers. Well, Romans 3 tells us that there is none righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who is seeking after God. We're not seeking God. We, we seek God like a criminal seeks a police officer. We are running away from him. And in his grace, he pursues us. We see it in John 4, but we see it way back at the beginning in Genesis 3. Adam and Eve sin, and they run to God to fix it. Now they hear him coming, and they run the other way and try to fix it themselves. And he, in his mercy, pursues them. Well, we see Jesus seeking sinners, and, and this is one of the most unlikely of converts, one of the most pitiful creatures, I think, in all of the scriptural record. Jesus is stepping over boundaries in order to get to her. So he stepped over a geographical boundary or a political boundary. He's a Jew, and he actually is stepping out of Israel, and he's going through Samaria. The passage said he had to. Now, technically, he could have gone from Judea to Galilee by going around. Some Jews were so prejudiced, they didn't even want to set, set foot in Samaria. Uh, Jesus went through Samaria on purpose. So he goes to another culture. Uh, he's dealing with religious boundaries. He steps over religious boundaries. The Jews believe this. The Samaritans believe that. They, they had a false worship system. They had a false temple. They believed the Pentateuch, but they kind of altered it. They didn't believe the rest of the Bible. They, they were confused, and Jesus steps over that. Uh, he's speaking to a woman and, and even speaking to your own wife in public. Uh, in Jesus' day, speaking to your own wife in public was kind of something you didn't do. There was, there was uh, such chauvinism. Ladies were not honored, and, and Jesus has no time for that kind of nonsense and prejudice. He says, I'm speaking to this person. He's dealing with a Samaritan. If, if you know the history, Samaritans were hated by the Jews. Um, the Jews were so smug, so self-righteous, and they were prejudiced against Gentiles. The only thing worse than a Gentile was a Samaritan. Uh, Samaritans, when Assyria conquered Israel, Assyria forced them to intermarry. So they're neither Jew nor Gentile. They're kind of a combination of the two, and it made them hateful to everybody. Uh, there was such gross prejudice. And Jesus, in his mercy, has no time for that. He says, let, 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 me come to that, let me come to that social taboo and just dismiss it entirely. A friend of mine says that the gospel is a dagger in the heart of racism. We think that all the turmoil in our country is so new. It's not new. Jesus was dealing with all kinds of prejudices and taboos. And Jesus said, "Get you know, everybody step aside. I'm speaking to this woman from Samaria. In spite of her religion, in, in, in spite of her, her gender or her ethnicity, in spite of her sordid past, he is definitely going to the other side of the tracks in order to meet this woman. And she actually tries to get away from him, but he's just after her. Uh, Jesus seeks sinners. There's something beautiful about that. Now, let me, let me uh, pan out a little bit from John chapter 4. Do you know what comes before John chapter 4? Anyone? John chapter 3. Where else are you going to get insight like that? Um, 
That, that makes our seminary proud, I'm sure. John chapter 3. John chapter 3, Jesus is dealing with another sinner named Nicodemus. And it's so different. You know, the, these are the poles of humanity. Okay, I'm going to give you more insight into this passage. Nicodemus is a man. The Samaritan woman is a woman. I know. Remarkable. Nicodemus is a Jew, and she's a Samaritan. Nicodemus was not only a teacher in Israel, he's among the most respected. He is the teacher in Israel. He's a Pharisee. So everybody respects him. He's, you know, he's admired, and she is the off-scouring of society. I mean, she, she is a pariah among the Samaritans. If you're an outcast among the Samaritans, that's about as far gone as you can get. Why is this woman getting water at noon in the, in the midday heat. There's nobody else there. Why is she going then as opposed to when other women would go early in the morning or late in the day? You know, why, why does she want to be by herself? Because if you've had five husbands in a small village, you also have five former mothers-in-law. And who knows how many former sisters-in-law. And she's ashamed and she wants to be by herself. She's avoiding people. She's so different from Nicodemus, but the ground is level at the cross. We are all alike in our sin, in our condemnation. Jesus tells this woman that he can save her. Jesus tells Nicodemus, this respected Jew, when he says, Nicodemus, you must be born again, what he's really saying is, Nicodemus, you're dead. Spiritually, you have no life. You must be born again. And whether he's dealing with this respected Jewish man or this outcast Samaritan woman, it's all the same. They need Jesus. You know, whoever you are, wherever you fit on the spectrum between these two individuals in John 3 and John 4, we need Jesus. Jesus seeks sinners. The second point is this. I won't take long on this, but Jesus saves sinners. Jesus saves sinners like Nicodemus and like the Samaritan woman. Jesus saves sinners. Luke 19.10, Jesus summarizes his ministry, uh, and he says that the Son of Man came to seek and save that which was lost. Jesus saves sinners, like, like the Samaritan woman and like us. When Jesus deals with her sin, you know, he points out to her, hey, go get your husband. It wasn't a topic change. He wasn't changing the subject. He actually is going to say, you want what I'm offering? Okay, let's deal with your life. Call your husband. And, and she says, well, evasively, uh, I've had no husband. Or, you know, I'm not married. Yeah, you're not married now. But you've been married and divorced five times. You're shacked up with somebody else. You say, man, it's so awkward that Jesus brings that out. No, it's, it's grace. You know, we say that, that God is omnipresent. God is omnipotent. God is omniscient. God is also omnigracious. He, he seeks these outcasts. And most of the Gospels, it's not Jesus dealing with multitudes. Most of the Gospels, he's dealing with a woman caught in adultery. He's dealing with a leper. He's dealing with a blind man. He deals with needy people. He seeks them and he saves them. So here he comes to this lady. And instead of rejecting her, judging her, he comes to bring her salvation. He reveals himself as the Messiah and several times we have him talking about what I'm offering to you is eternal life. And then again, in verse 42, it says, this is the Savior of the world, the only one who saves. Jesus 
seeks the lost in order to save the lost. You know, and implicit in this is the fact that Jesus would actually take all of her sin upon himself and go to the cross and die for her. You know, we read in John 8, Jesus meets the woman that was caught in the act of adultery. Everybody wants to stone her. And Jesus kind of removes them by writing in the sand. Then he says, neither do I condemn you. Now, let me ask you a question. How can the Son of God, the sinless one in whom there is no darkness at all, how can Jesus look at a sinner and say, neither do I condemn you? I think some people have the idea that salvation is God just, you know, kind of removes our sin. He erases it. He just, just you know, gets rid of it. No, Jesus didn't condemn these women, these sinners, because Jesus would ultimately be condemned in their place. You want to understand how Jesus can forgive sinners? Then you move from John 3 and 4 to John 18 and 19 and 20, where Jesus is taking the sins of the world on himself, as John would say, John the Baptist, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So Jesus goes to the cross, and 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that he who knew no sin was made to be sin for us. So the sins of the woman from John 8, the sins of Nicodemus, the sins of this Samaritan woman, this Samaritan village, the sins of you and I are placed on Jesus, and Jesus, the Son of God, is treated as though he were God's enemy, so that you and I, his enemies, could be treated as his sons and daughters. So at the cross, Jesus takes sin from us, which is terrible, because he's holy. But he's, he becomes sin for us, and then he takes wrath from the Father. So he's literally in the crossfire at the cross, taking sin from sinners, taking just wrath from God. All of it falls on him, and he hangs alone. He had been forsaken by the disciples, denied by Peter, sold by Judas, and he took it all quietly. But then he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The answer is that God forsook him because he treated his son as a sinner. Jesus came to, to save the lost. And we can say that kind of, you know, kind of blithely. Oh, Jesus saved sinners. Jesus endured the wrath of his father to save sinners. Jesus, the sinless one, became sin to save sinners. Jesus was exiled from God so that exiles like us could be welcomed, adopted, and beloved by God. The gospel is remarkable. Never see that sign that says Jesus saves. Never take that lightly. What he endured for our salvation is remarkable. Jesus seeks sinners. Jesus saves sinners, and that alone is amazing. But the passage digs a little deeper, and I, I really appreciate this part. I think maybe it's, it's not understood well from John 4. Third point is this, Jesus satisfies sinners. Jesus satisfies sinners. He speaks to this lady, and he says, if you knew who I am, you would ask me, and I would give you living water. If you drink the, well from, if, if you drink for the water from the well, you will be thirsty again. But if you drink the water I give, you will never thirst again. That's so interesting to me. The analogy he uses for salvation is I'll give you water and you will never thirst again. Now, if I had been Jesus, I know that, that is a bad way to start any sentence. Uh, it sounds blasphemous at its core, right? 
But if I had been Jesus, if I were using the water as an analogy for salvation for this woman, I probably would have said, now, if you knew who I am, you would ask me for water, and I would take this water to wash away your filth. Because you're so dirty. And she was. She was such a sinner. Jesus didn't use water as an analogy saying that he could, he, he could cleanse her filth. He used water as an analogy to say he could quench her thirst. There is such compassion in that. You know, you look at this woman, and um, this dates me. It shows how old I am. But I, I kind of look at her, and I'm like, oh, it's like Elizabeth Taylor. Like, marry a guy, leave a guy. Marry a guy, leave a guy. And again and again and again. That's not the way the world was. You know, men wouldn't talk to their own wives. Women had, had almost no rights. Women could be divorced for almost any reason, even among pious Jews. This isn't a woman who just entered and exited marriages willy-nilly. This isn't a prostitute. You know, stop thinking of her primarily as, as someone that is you know, looking for sexual fulfillment or, or she's just an immoral, gross woman. You know what she really wanted? She wanted to be loved. Imagine a Samaritan girl grows up and her whole life she's thinking, my life will finally be satisfying. I'll have meaning. I'll be worth something if I can just find the right man. You know, I mean, I'm living and I'm waiting for life to begin. I'm waiting for life to start. And what I really want more than anything is a family. I want a husband who loves me. I want kids. And, you know, she, she's not a drug addict. She's, she wants what, what most of us want. You know, what, what girls kind of grow up dreaming about. So she meets a man, eventually they marry, but the marriage doesn't satisfy the longing of her heart. It never could have. And eventually this man that she thought was the answer rejects her. More than likely she doesn't leave him. She gets kicked to the curb. He's moving on. He wants someone new. And here, all she ever wanted, she, she got and it wasn't satisfying and she's rejected. She's so thirsty. And then a second man comes, and she thinks, oh, okay, okay, I got off to a bad start, but this one will bring me satisfaction because I'm so alone. I'm so thirsty. And she meets a second man, and she's thirstier still. And she's rejected again, and a third time, and a fourth time, and a fifth time. She's heartbroken. I know she's sinful, but she's so thirsty, so confused. And then a man comes and he says, you know, you, you're damaged, you're used. I'm not marrying you, but you can move in. Okay, I'll, I'll try. Maybe this is what I've been looking for. And she's so thirsty. And Jesus in his mercy will die for her sins. But when he engages her with the gospel, he says, I can satisfy the thirst of your soul. Jesus satisfies sinners. Her story is very much, ironically, like Solomon in the Old Testament. He writes the book of Ecclesiastes. 
And he said, you know, I tried to find the meaning of life in, in people and in, in sex with all of his concubines and in knowledge and in works and in money. And it was all what? What's the big word of the book of Ecclesiastes? It was all vanity, empty. See, we, we live surrounded by people. They're trying to find meaning for life in a relationship. You know, you're single and you think, if I just found the right guy, I'd be satisfied. You won't be. If I could get married, that would bring meaning to my life. Uh-uh. If I could only have kids, that would make my life meaningful and simple. <laughs> Sorry, I shouldn't have laughed at that. Kids are great. They're not going to bring your life meaning and satisfaction. They're not. So then people say, well, I, I need a bigger house. I need a better job. I need more education. I, I need an affair. I need vacations. I need a, a nice car. And, and you're surrounded by people. They want more and more and more. And whatever they get, they're not satisfied. Because what they need is Jesus. You know, I, I tell people about my wife. My wife, Lori, is a great wife. She's a bad God. She cannot meet the longing of my soul. Only God can do that. And when you put the pressure on your spouse or child or job to give your life meaning, you will always be thirsty because what you need is Christ. See, many of you have come to Christ as your Savior, but you need to understand the gospel message that Jesus is also the one who satisfies you and gives your life meaning. He's not only your Savior, He's your treasure. He's, he's everything you need. And so the psalmist would say, the Lord is my shepherd. I don't need anything else. Isaiah invites people, whoever is thirsty, come and stop wasting your time for stuff that will not satisfy you. Come freely and, and learn of God and be satisfied with Him. Jesus will say this in John 7. The book of Revelation ends with this invitation, whoever is thirsty, come. Find satisfaction in Jesus. You're not going to find it in anything else. So you're single and thirsty, you need Jesus. You're married and thirsty, you need Jesus. You have a checkered background, you need Jesus. You have a great job, you need Jesus. Jesus seeks and saves and satisfies the lost. What a beautiful passage. How, how kind our God is. You say, roll the credits. That's the end. It's not. The story's not over. In the middle of this, you're going to have this discussion on worship. And when I'm reading the passage, I'm like, that is so random. Why do you have this evangelistic conversation, a revival that falls, and in the middle of it, you come to like verses 23 and 24 about worship. You say, man, that is so random. Mm -mm. The fourth point is this. Jesus turns sinners into worshipers. Jesus turns sinners into worshipers. See, John 4.23 says, God is seeking worshipers. Let me ask you, where does God find worshipers? You know, do you think he looks across the world and every so often he's like, oh, there's a whole bunch of them in orange. They're amazing. You know, they're so selfless. They're ready to, to worship me and give me praise. No, there, there's none righteous. Nobody's seeking God. Jesus doesn't find worshipers. He makes them. What does he make them out of? Samaritan women. He makes them out of the dregs of society. He, make, he makes them out of sinners like us. 
So what he's doing through the gospel, he's not only seeking, saving, satisfying the lost, but he's doing it for the glory of God. So the goal of the gospel is that sinners will come to Christ and worship. So when we put the verses together, Luke 19.10 says Jesus is seeking and saving the lost. John 4.23 says God is seeking worshipers, and that's the same thing. God is seeking worshipers, and he's, he's making them out of sinners like us. Because as I said in the beginning, I'm just a Samaritan woman. We're just confused, needy people, but God wants to be worshipped. So we sang today words from Revelation about worthy is the Lamb. The goal of missions, the goal of evangelism, the goal of the church is we want people to come to Christ so that Revelation 5, people from every tribe and tongue and kindred and nation, people from all over the world, you know, Jews, Samaritans, Americans, and we said this morning, Moroccans and Indonesians, people from all over the world will be gathered around the throne, giving praise to the Lamb who shed His blood to save them. God turns sinners like us into worshipers. So worship is something that is so valuable. You say, so that's the end. It's actually not. The end is Jesus turns sinners into witnesses. This pariah is actually one of the most effective evangelists in the entire New Testament. She, she's been avoiding people, but as soon as she meets Jesus and, and she's saved and, and she says, he told me what I did, he, he satisfied my heart, immediately she has to go and find her mother's-in-law and say, you got to meet this guy. You know, she, she goes to the village and now she's actually seeking people. She left her jar. That's not symbolic of her old way of life. That's just a jar that carries water. But she says, who cares about water? I need to find my friends. She's so obsessed with the gospel that she's oblivious to other needs. And she goes and gets everybody and tells them to meet Jesus. She, she hasn't been trained in evangelism. She hasn't gone to Bible college or seminary. She just, she met Jesus. Everybody, you got to meet this guy. Now, the contrast with the disciples doesn't make them look good. There's this juxtaposition. They're set side by side. She evangelized the whole community in moments the disciples had just been in that town. They didn't bring anybody to Jesus. They brought lunch. So they bring lunch back. They were so obsessed with their own needs, they were oblivious to the gospel. So she couldn't care less about her jar. She cares about people. They couldn't less care less about people because they need lunch. They told Jesus, hey, you need to eat something. He says, he says you know, I have, I have meat that you know not of. I have food that you don't know anything about. They say, wow, did, you know, did somebody bring Jesus a ham sandwich? Probably not. You know, they're Jews. But they, they miss it just the way she missed the water, the way Nicodemus missed the born again. All these, you know, they're thinking physical. He's thinking spiritual. He says, what I'm hungry for is doing the will of my Father, and that is seeking, saving the lost and turning them into worshipers. He tells them, look, and, and you'll see the harvest is coming. And you have this missions message he says, the harvest is coming. He's probably not looking at fields. He's probably looking at a bunch of Samaritans that are walking toward them. He says, guys, we're about to reap even though you didn't sow. Somebody else did all the work of sowing. Samaritan woman, satisfied customer. She knows nothing except you got to meet Jesus. She says, he says to him, guys, get ready. You're going to be part of this harvest. And 
far better than whatever's in your stupid lunch is seeing people come to Christ. That should be the passion of your soul. You're going to have this revival fall, and it's all happening in this one passage. We move from somebody who is ignorant and lost and thirsty and needy. She comes to Christ, and she worships, and she witnesses, and it's all packed into just a couple days. But that's what God is doing in the world. 2,000 years later, that's what God wants to do in Orange. It's what he wants to do throughout California. It's what he wants to do around the world. In his great mercy, Jesus is seeking and saving and satisfying sinners, transforming them into worshipers, and then using them as witnesses, as missionaries to give the gospel. I don't know you. In a group this size, probably somebody comes in, and what you need is salvation. You need your sins forgiven. You need to trust Jesus, not yourself, not your church. There are others, you know Jesus, but you need to find your contentment in him. And then by his grace, be conformed to be, to be a, a worshiper who delights to give the gospel. You can't talk about it. You can't, you can't help it. You, just, it. you just have to tell people. I'm sick of living my life for jars. Jesus, could you use me? to help other people get to you so you can save and satisfy them as well. That's what God's doing in the world in John 4. Did it for her. Did it for Nicodemus. He'll do it for you and me. Bunch of Samaritan women. Praise God for his grace. Amen. Thank you, Lord, for the truth of Scripture. Thank you for this beautiful passage. It's a lot more here that we didn't get to discuss today, but uh, give us an appetite to learn not just this story, but learn what you're doing in the world would you do it among us? Uh, whatever people's needs are as they arrive today, would you work in their hearts? And for your glory, would you, would you use your word and grow us, change us, save the lost, make Christians marvel at the beauty of the gospel, and might we all serve you uh, more gladly, more, more courageously taking the gospel to a wicked, dying, needy world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.